The Supreme Court decision in Rodriguez versus United States has had a profound impact on how law enforcement officers conduct traffic stops. Under this rule of law developed in the Rodriguez case, what I often refer to as the Rodriguez rule, if the traffic stop is extended by non-mission-related activity, any evidence discovered will be suppressed. So it's important to get it right. Traffic stops often become drug trafficking interdiction investigations, and that's exactly what happened in this case. Bringing you the latest case law updates on the legal aspects of law enforcement. This is Broadcast Blue. Hello and welcome to this edition of Broadcast Blue. I'm your host, Bruce Allen Barnard. In this podcast, I'm going to review the case of United States versus Smith. And this case comes to us from the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit down there in New Orleans, Louisiana. If you've listened to other Broadcast Blue podcasts over the last two years, you know I've tried to keep you aware of the developments regarding traffic stops and what I've often referred to as the Rodriguez Rule. In many of the cases I've reviewed, the officers asked questions that the court deemed unrelated to the mission and therefore led to the evidence being thrown out under the exclusionary rule. In this case, the officer asked permissible questions, which were instrumental in developing the reasonable suspicion required to seamlessly convert the traffic stop into a Terry stop. It provides a great example for us to use, so let's take a look at the facts. The events in this case took place in Hernando, Mississippi, which if you're not familiar with Mississippi, it's in the very northwest corner, just a few miles actually due south of Memphis, Tennessee. Now in Hernando, interstate highways 55 and 69 intersect. About 1800 or 6 p.m. one evening in October back in 2017, Hernando police officer Hunter Solomon pulled over a black Chevy Suburban on the northbound side of Interstate I-55 in Hernando because it had improperly had an improperly displayed license plate. As Officer Solomon walked to the vehicle, he saw the vehicle actually had a temporary plate that he hadn't seen before, but he could see it now. It was displayed in a tinted rear window. So Officer Solomon approached the vehicle, and the defendant in the case, Corey Smith, was the driver, produced his license. At Officer Solomon's invitation, uh, Smith got out and walked to the rear of the Suburban so Officer Solomon could show Smith why he had been pulled over. Now they're out of earshot of the passengers, and out of earshot, Officer Solomon asked Smith about his travel itinerary and his passengers, asked him who's in the car, where was he headed, where did did he come from? Smith said that he had the purpose of his trip was to to pick up to uh, acquire a small ice maker, uh, a deal that he had found on Craigslist for his restaurant in Fort Fort Worth, Texas, and he said he was headed to Indiana uh, to pick it up. Now, Officer Solomon asked about the size of the ice machine, and apparently, it was very very small. And Officer Solomon asked him why he would drive all the way from Texas to Indiana to pick up this small ice maker rather than just having it shipped. Um, It certainly didn't need two people to to help him bring it even if he was going to drive up there. Smith didn't have a good answer to this question. He really didn't provide any type of logical uh, response to, to these questions. 
At this point, Smith also told Officer Solomon that his two passengers, the two people in the car, used to work for him, and they were going to help him pick up the ice maker. And when he asked who they were, uh, oddly enough, Smith only knew the name of one of the passengers, even though he said both of them had worked for him before. He told Officer Solomon that he had picked them up in Jackson, Mississippi. The plan, according to Smith anyway, was for the men to spend the night in nearby Memphis, Tennessee, and then continue to Indiana the following day. Having heard this story now and finding it somewhat implausible, Officer Solomon decided to verify the story with the two passengers, who were later identified as Willie Carroll and Gregory Carter. He left Smith at the rear of the vehicle with another officer that arrived on scene as backup, Officer Davis, and Officer Solomon uh, first got Carroll and Carter's names and asked dispatch to run a background check. So he asked him for identification and they produced it. While that was being taken care of, he asked Carol and Carter about the itinerary. When asked about their travel plans, passenger Carol told Officer Solomon he didn't really know Smith and said that the three men were headed to Memphis for a party and that they would return to Jackson, Mississippi the next day. He had no idea about a trip to Indiana for an ice maker. Carter's story, the other passenger, was similar to that of Carol, uh, with a slight difference. He said the men were headed to Memphis for a party, but was unsure when they would be returning to Jackson, Mississippi. Like Carol, Carter had no idea about any trip to Indiana to pick up an ice maker. So Officer Solomon at this point viewed these different stories, the divergent stories, combined with the fact that they were traveling on a, uh, the interstate through uh, Hernando, which was a route frequently used for transporting contraband, he viewed all of this as red flags. And at that point, Officer Solomon suspected that the men were trafficking or hiding narcotics in the vehicle. So remember, the stop took place at about 6 o'clock p.m., and by 6.09 p.m., both of the passengers, Carol and Carter, their identification had been verified. A minute later, at 6.10 p.m., the background check returned an outstanding warrant on passenger Carol. So Officer Solomon arrested Carol at approximately 6.12 p.m. and placed him in Officer Davis's patrol car. Officer Solomon then asked Smith for consent to search the Suburban. Smith became a little defensive and raised his voice and said he didn't want his vehicle searched because he didn't know what the passengers might have placed in the car. Around the same time, Officer Solomon requested a more detailed background check called a CQH on all three men. The CQH took about six minutes to run, and at about 6.18 p.m., the CQH on Carter revealed that he had four prior drug arrests, including two for possession with intent to sell. Because of all this, Officer Solomon decided to use his canine, named Crash, to sniff around the exterior of the Suburban. This sniff began at about 6.21 p.m., and less than a minute later, as Crash approached the rear door on the passenger side of the Suburban, he jerked his head back and began to sniff the car door intensely. Crash then sat down, which is how he passively alerted that he smelled narcotics. Officer Solomon determined that Crash's alert gave him probable cause to search the Suburban for narcotics. Officer Solomon then put Crash back into his patrol car and began searching the Suburban. In the front part of the Suburban, Officer Solomon found an envelope addressed to Smith, and inside this envelope was a stack 
uh, blank metal social security cards and a handwritten list of financial companies with addresses and email addresses that appeared to, appeared to be made up. The items were located sometime before 6.40 p.m. Officer Solomon then paused the search and contacted the detective to help him search the rest of the vehicle. They eventually uncovered fake IDs, authentic IDs with matching Social Security cards, a printer, blank check stubs, and other items. Smith and Carter were arrested for fraud and identity theft, and it's important to note no narcotics were found. Smith was indicted on various charges related to fraud and identity theft, and he moved to suppress the evidence obtained from the vehicle search, making three separate arguments that his Fourth Amendment rights were violated during the traffic stop. First, he argued that Officer Solomon unreasonably extended the traffic stop by continuing to question Smith and his passengers beyond 6.04 p.m., which was the point at which Smith argues the stop reasonably should have been completed. Second, Smith argued that even if the stop could reasonably have been extended beyond 6.04 p.m., it is clear that by 6.12 p.m., Officer Solomon had no further reasonable suspicion that could support a further extension of the stop and the ensuing narcotics investigation. And third, and lastly, Smith argued that Officer Solomon unreasonably extended the stop by waiting approximately 10 minutes to, to, to deploy the canine crash after he began the narcotics investigation. The district court denied Smith's motion to suppress, and he was sentenced to 36 months in prison and three years of supervised release. Smith then appealed the district court's decision to the United States Circuit Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, and that is the case that we're discussing. Let's talk about the legal principles applicable to this case with Supreme Court decisions, important Supreme Court decisions I'll often refer to as blue key cases. First, we'll start with Delaware versus Prowse. As held in Delaware versus Prowse back in 1979, a Fourth Amendment seizure occurs when an officer stops a vehicle and detains the occupants. For a traffic stop to be justified, it has to be justified at its inception and the officer must have an objectively reasonable suspicion that some sort of illegal activity, such as a traffic violation, has occurred or is about to occur before stopping the vehicle. The legality of traffic stops for Fourth Amendment purposes are analyzed under the standard articulated by the Supreme Court in Terry v. Ohio back in 1968. A traffic stop is, has always been treated by the court as more analogous to a Terry stop um, than an arrest. And it, it has its own special test, and it, the analysis involves two steps. First, as I indicated from Delaware v. Prowse, the court determines whether the stop was justified at its inception. And second, if the stop was justified, the court determines whether the officer's subsequent actions were reasonably related in scope to the circumstances that caused him to stop the vehicle in the first place. In other words, the actions have to be related in scope to the mission. And the mission, when you have a traffic stop, is the traffic infraction, the violation of the traffic code that has justified the stop at its inception. Now, in 2015, in Rodriguez versus United States, the Supreme Court the Supreme Court reiterated the rule of law that it had previously developed back in 2005, 10 years earlier, in Illinois versus Cabalas. 
And the court in Rodriguez uh, held that a seizure for a traffic violation justifies a police investigation of that violation. Now, there's no hard and fast time limit. You know, the court doesn't like to give you specific lines in the sand. Uh, they use terms like reasonableness and, and, uh, and use a totality of the circumstances. So there is no hard and fast time limit for how long it takes to, to conduct a traffic stop reasonably. Rather, the stop must be temporary and lasts no longer than is necessary to effectuate the purpose of the stop. The tolerable duration of police inquiries in the traffic stop context is determined by the mission of the seizure, which is to address the traffic violation that warranted the stop and also attend to related safety concerns. And as a part of that traffic stop investigation, what an officer is permitted to do is examine the driver's license and vehicle registration and check for insurance and run computer checks. He can inquire and ask about, uh, ask the driver about the purpose and the itinerary of the trip. Ask the occupants the same questions, um, and also ask the occupants occupants for identification. And if it's provided, run their identification as well. Authority for the seizure ends when the tasks that are tied to the traffic infraction either are or reasonably should have been completed. And if the officer develops reasonable suspicion of additional criminal activity during the investigation of the circumstances that originally caused the stop, only at that point can an officer further de- detain the people, the, the driver, the occupants, for a reasonable time while appropriately attempting to dispel this reasonable suspicion. So under the Rodriguez rule, we have this concept. The, the purpose of the stop is the traffic infraction. Now, there might be an underlying uh, purpose. There might be a subjective purpose of the officer to conduct uh, some type of drug trafficking interdiction, which is often the case where traffic stops are pretextual. Um, But in Wren, in the Wren decision, W-H-R-E-N decision versus United States, the, the Supreme Court said that's okay. The subjective intent of the officer does not matter as long as the, the two requirements are met, as long as the, the stop is justified at its inception and that the officers take no, uh, no, time, no more time ne- than necessary to effectuate that stop. Now, while you're doing the traffic stop and while you're running the driver's licenses and the, the vehicle registration, checking, running through the checks, the background, the criminal history checks, if based on observations, uh, based on any of the sensory observations, an officer develops a reasonable suspicion of a separate criminal offense, um, then at that point, the, the traffic stop seamlessly transitions into a Terry stop, which uh, which you're allowed more time in a Terry stop than you are in a traffic stop because it takes more time um, in, a, in a Terry stop than it would typically in a traffic stop. But you have to have this seamless transition. You cannot, you cannot extend the traffic stop with investigation that's unrelated to the mission, which is the traffic stop. And that's the proposition that Rodriguez stands for that we've been dealing with. A few more cases that you need to be aware of, uh, United States versus Sokolow and Navarrete versus California. Those two two cases uh, together stand for the proposition that reasonable suspicion is a low threshold, requires only some minimal level of objective justification and not subjectives. And this objective justification requires articulation. 
And so reasonable suspicion exists when the officer can point to specific and articulable facts which taken together with rational inferences from those facts reasonably warrant the search or the seizure. So a reasonable suspicion demands something more than just a hunch, but considerably less than proof uh, by preponderance of the evidence and obviously less than the lower standard than that, which is a probable cause. So it's lower than probable cause, lower than preponderance of the evidence. It's a it's a low threshold, but you need to be able to articulate the facts um, that would create an objectively reasonable suspicion that the, the people were involved, uh, people detained were involved in criminal activity. A couple other cases uh, you might not have heard of but are going to be relevant to the decision today, United States versus Cortez in 1981 and United States versus Arvizu in 2002. And these two cases stand for the proposition that the, the court's inquiry views the totality of the circumstances and the collective knowledge and experience of the officer and gives due weight to these inferences, factual inferences, because officers can draw on their own experience and their specialized training to make inferences from and deductions about all of this, the cumulative total of all of this information available to them that might elude an untrained person. So these two cases stand for the propositions that when presented with certain facts, based on an officer's training and experience, there might be inferences or deductions that they uh, come to that uh, a lay person would not because they don't have that experience and training. And the court recognizes this concept of these deductions and inferences in these two cases, Cortez and Arvizu. And so there we have it. There's the, the legal, the blue key cases and the legal backdrop for what the Fifth Circuit is going to do in this case. Before we discuss how the Fifth Circuit applied the law to the facts in this case, let me take a few minutes to let you know what's happening over at LEA 1. Uh, first of all, like everyone else in the United States and other parts of the world, we too have been impacted by the spread of the, the very dangerous coronavirus. Instead of recording in the Broadcast Blue Studio in the LEA 1 offices in Fernandina Beach, Florida, I'm coming to you today from my study nook in my home. Um, like everyone else, we're engaging in social distancing to help stop the spread of COVID-19. So if you hear an occasional Labrador retriever or cockapoo bark while I'm uh, speaking, you'll, you'll know why. As you know, our entire purpose at LEA 1 is to provide federal, state, and local law enforcement officers with the highest possible training on the legal aspects of law enforcement, including search and seizure law, interrogations and interviews, the legal aspects of use of force, report writing, courtroom testimony, and officer liability. Um, for the past two years, our focus has been where the demand has been, which is live face-to-face training. LEA 1 stru- instructors, which, uh, which we take pride in the fact that LEA 1 uh, has the quality of instructors that we do. And we Collectively, we have a, a total of five former Fletzy senior legal instructors. Um, and uh, we've additionally, we've added a, a former judge. And we're about to add a fifth former Fletzy senior legal instructor um, when he retires from Fletzy in a few months. And he currently serves as the, the, the uh, legal, the use of force uh, legal subject matter expert for the Department of Homeland Security, Tim Miller. We're going to be happy to welcome him 
in a few months as well. There's there's a number of people who claim that they have the best legal instructors, but if you look at the credentials, um, it becomes clear to you who uh, who truly does. And the, the instructors like myself, we've been providing uh, providing training literally all over the country. I've been all over in the last few months, uh, from Colorado uh, to Virginia to Maine, all over the state of Florida, um, Alabama. I mean, I, I can't even Oklahoma. Um, Arkansas, I can't even uh, begin to name them all. But uh, the the point is, we've been traveling all over. That's what we do. And we were booked solid for the next 90 days. We had instructors traveling all over the country providing the training um, that we do face-to-face um, with the and law enforcement officers, which is typically where the demand has been. Well, that's changed with the current pandemic. Every single one of our courses for the next 90 days have been canceled. But you folks are still in the field. And unlike most Americans, you can't isolate yourselves from the public. You're at the tip of the spear. And once again, you're asked to go in harm's way with a very different kind of risk that is also very, very dangerous. And although the live training's been canceled, that doesn't mean that your training needs have been suspended. And since LEA 1 cannot present live face-to-face training, we're shifting our mode of training delivery to bring you the training, uh, bring you training both live, uh, live in a webinar format and in a through a virtual classroom format and on demand uh, through e-learning content on our learning management system called Learn Blue. We we've, we're really proud of the virtual classroom space that we've created, and through the use of high-speed internet, we're able to provide training live to your training room using internet-based uh, using the internet-based Leo One virtual classroom platform. And uh, we're very excited about that. So we're getting uh, we're getting using technology. We're leveraging technology to enable uh, us to meet the training need through different media. Um, we're gonna you're gonna see a lot more a lot of webinars. We've scheduled many webinars for the upcoming months, and many of them are free. Um, and we are working to put the training we offer alive in an online format. We'll, we'll keep you abreast of all the new online offerings, working really hard behind the scenes to do this. Um, we'll keep you abreast of all the new online offerings, whether that's e-learning, whether it's a webinar, whether it's a, a, a live virtual classroom space uh, offers. Uh, we will uh, keep you abreast of all of that in our newsletter, The Blue Flash, as well as on the front page of our website at LEA1. Now, our name is our website address. Our website address is simply www.lea.one. That's it. There's no .com or anything. It's .one. LEA.one. That's all you need to know. Our name is our website address, and you can find everything. You can even subscribe to the Blue Flash. You can see what the schedule is. You can do everything from the front page of our very newly developed website at LEA1. We appreciate what you are doing and the risk that you are taking, and we promise to do everything we can to support your training needs in every modality in this unprecedented time of crisis. Smith first argued that the stop should have ended at 6.04 p.m. because by that time, Officer Solomon had seen that the vehicle had a temporary license plate and had confirmed that Smith's driver's license was valid. The Fifth Circuit did not agree. 
Smith had conceded that Solomon had a reasonable suspicion to pull him over, and so it was established that first prong of that test that the the stop had to be valid at its inception. That was conceded, and it was never argued. Um, So the initial traffic stop was valid at its inception, and the first prong of the Terry inquiry had been satisfied. Um, as a part of the traffic stop, and now remember, you know, you're in the, to the second prong. It, it, the duration has to be only the amount of time necessary to tend to the mission. As a part of the mission of the traffic stop, Solomon could examine the driver's license uh, the, and the identification of the vehicle's occupants and check for any outstanding warrants and run the registration. Solomon could also ask Smith about the purpose and destination and itinerary of their journey and then ask similar questions to the passengers, Carol and Carter, to verify Smith's statements. Those are all permissible under the law. Those are questions that are permissibly, uh, that are permissible that uh, you can ask as a part of the traffic stop mission. And so therefore, the court noted to the extent that Smith argued that any of those actions unreasonably prolonged the traffic stop beyond 6.04 p.m., his arguments failed. Uh, the computer checks on both Carol and Carter's licenses took it li- till at least 6.09 or 6.10. And so, therefore, the initial traffic stop was reasonable at least up to 6.10. And so they, they shoot down the first argument that Smith had made. Secondly, Smith argued that even if the stop was reasonably extended beyond 6.04, It was unreasonable to extend the stop beyond 612 in order to conduct a narcotics investigation. Officer Solomon, in his testimony, had admitted that by 612 p.m. that there was not anything else to do regarding the investigation of the improperly displayed tag. Therefore, any reasonable suspicion justifying an extension of the stop beyond that point must have arisen before that point or a continuation of the stop would be unreasonable under the Rodriguez rule. Well, the circuit, the Fifth Circuit disagreed with this argument as well. The court held that Officer Solomon's interactions with the three men during the traffic stop provided the reasonable suspicion to support and conduct a narcotics investigation and therefore justifying an extension of the stop. First, Officer Solomon noted the implausibility of the elements of Smith's story. Smith stated the ice maker he was going to pick up was not that large, but he had no explanation for why he needed three adult men to pick it up. Um, nor could he explain why it made any sense at all to drive all the way from Fort Worth, Texas to Indiana rather than just having this uh, apparently small machine shipped. Secondly, Smith, Carter, and Carroll all gave contradictory stories about their destination, uh, destination, the purpose of their trip, and their relationships to uh, each other. Smith claimed the men were headed to Indiana to pick up restaurant equipment. Carol and Carter both asserted they were headed to a party in Memphis. Smith claimed Carol and Carter were previous employees. Carol informed Officer Solomon that he really didn't know Smith. Smith did, uh, didn't even know the name of one of the people uh, that he'd claimed to have been an employee. And further, the stories from Carter and Carol didn't match up with each other. One of the men stated they would be returning to Jackson, Mississippi the next day, while the other one said they weren't sure when they would be returning. All of these inconsistencies were, sinif- were significant, and they lean in favor of establishing reasonable suspicion. And the court held, remember those blue key cases, the court held that this is particularly true where, as here, Officer Solomon drew on his experience 
experience to make inferences and deductions on the cumulative information available to him that might well elude an untrained person. And Officer Solomon testified that in his experience, when drivers are dishonest about um, or when they're being pulled over after they've been pulled over, it usually indicates they're hiding contraband. And third, Smith and his companions were traveling along an interstate known for transportation of contraband. They're on I-55. While the court agreed with the Tenth Circuit uh, in that the probativeness of a particular defendant's route is minimal, the court noted nevertheless that it consistently considered travel along known drug corridors as a relevant piece of of the reasonable suspicion puzzle. I love that. I use those puzzle piece analogies all the time. So uh, that it, it, in, on its own, all by itself, it might not rise to reasonable suspicion, but it's certainly a relevant piece of the reasonable suspicion puzzle. Accordingly, his travel on I-55 also supported reasonable suspicion based on these facts. And lastly, um, they noted that by 6.10 p.m., Officer Solomon knew that one of the vehicle's occupants had an outstanding arrest warrant for parole violation, and this fact could also have contributed to Officer Solomon's reasonable suspicion. So, in total, in sum, the record supports Officer Solomon's reasonable suspicion based on his experience that criminal activity may have been afoot. The record established the reasonable suspicion arose by 6.12 p.m., and therefore the court concluded that the extension of the stop beyond 6.12, which is the point in time where the traffic stop would have ended, the extension beyond that time so that Officer Solomon could conduct a narcotics investigation was justified and did not violate the Fourth Amendment. In his third and final argument, Smith argued that even if it was reasonable for Officer Solomon to begin a narcotics investigation at 6.12, that that investigation was unreasonably extended by Officer Solomon's decision to wait until 621 to have Crash conduct the the drug sweep. In Smith's view, Officer Officer Solomon should have immediately deployed K-9 Crash at 611 or 612 rather than sitting around idly until 621, so about a 9- or 10-minute period uh, where he did nothing. Um, And the, the court, the... Circuit Court agreed with the District Court that the delay was not unreasonable under the circumstances. The court noted that Smith's arguments boiled down to disagreeing with Officer Solomon's decision to wait until the in-depth background checks were finished before deploying Crash. Remember, he'd made he'd requested those in-depth background checks, and that's what he was waiting for. He asked for consent to search the vehicle at 612. He was denied consent. He decided to run more in-depth background checks at that point. The court said that at this point in time, he's in a he's in a, a justifiable extension. He's now in a Terry stop and not in traffic stop anymore. Um, Smith argued it was um, unreasonable because when he finally did conduct the sweep with crash, the sniff, it only took a minute or two. So if he'd have done that at 612, um, he could have done that at 612 and been finished by 614. But the court noted the the appropriate inquiry is not simply whether some other alternative was available, but whether the police acted unreasonably in failing to recognize or pursue it. And the court said the record does not suggest 
that Officer Solomon unreasonably dragged the investigation out. Rather, during the 10-minute interval that is being challenged by the defendant in this case, the record showed that Solomon was waiting for the in-depth background checks on all three men, as well as trying to secure uh, consent uh, to search the vehicle. And so for those reasons, the court concluded that Officer Solomon did not act unreasonably by waiting until 621 in order to use canine crash for uh, the drug sniff. After viewing the totality of the circumstances, the Fifth Circuit concluded that the district court's decision to deny Smith's motion to suppress was supported by a reasonable view of the evidence in the record, and therefore the district court's judgment was affirmed. So what are the takeaways for law enforcement officers from this case? You know, I, this is geared for, I gear this for law enforcement officers. I don't do this webinar. There's a lot of attorneys that listen in, and and gosh knows they need it. Uh, I I don't gear these web of these podcasts for uh, for the attorneys. It's geared for the law enforcement officers. So I don't I don't want to just give you a brief of the case. I want to I want to identify takeaways. What are what can LEOs take away from this? What are the takeaways from all, from these cases that we discuss? And I want to tell there there is a good takeaway from this case. And we've seen a number of cases uh, with traffic stops that I've talked about in the last year and a half. You need to know what questions are related to the mission of the traffic stop versus the ones that aren't and therefore um, provide you with more information through through the use of these questions that are mission related it's possible as it was in this case with officer solomon that by asking these mission related questions that you can develop the reasonable suspicion required to turn a traffic stop into a Terry stop without violating the Rodriguez rule. There are other cases that we've looked at, like last year in early 2019, we had the, the Campbell case from the 11th Circuit. And these cases indicate that if you ask questions during the traffic stop that are not related to the mission, and as a result of these questions, the stop is extended, um, then it will be a Rodriguez violation and the evidence will be suppressed. In the Campbell decision, it was 26 seconds. 26 seconds. This is a tricky aspect of the law where time is measured in seconds. So you need to know the law and you need to get it right. Understanding what permissible questions are versus impermissible questions is a very, very important part of conducting traffic stops and trying to establish that reasonable suspicion uh, to turn the traffic stop into a Terry stop. Well, that's it for this case, and that's it for this edition of Broadcast Blue. Thank you so much for joining me, and stay tuned. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Going to have a lot more podcasts coming out, especially in this time now where we're all socially isolating. Going to try and pick up the slack with more podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and so you know when the, the next edition is available. Take care, and thanks again for what you do. This presentation is provided for purely academic purposes. I'm fond of saying I'm a lawyer, but I'm not your lawyer. And what I mean by that is that I do not provide formal legal advice through these presentations. No part of this presentation is offered, nor should it be construed as legal advice. If you need formal legal advice regarding any part of this presentation or have legal questions, you should consult with your attorney.